you need to be stopped. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and uh, my brain, if it were not encased in my skull right now, would be somewhere else. Uh, it's going to be a dicey episode because I am not firing on all cylinders. Uh, nothing like starting an episode on a high note where everyone can be real excited for it. Uh, joining me, as always, is my co-host. Uh, I'm Martha Sullivan, and I am also tired. <laughs> uh, we're coming into almost a year of of COVIDness, and I think I think everyone is starting to feel the COVID brain a little bit more. I'm in hell. Um, no, I read and I was reading an article or skimming it the other day about how like if you feel like your memory and your long term like um, perspective and your focus is all shot, don't worry, it's not your fault. And I was like, oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) A reason that I, like, can't remember, um, you know, what I had for lunch the other day. I was, (laughs) uh, I was uh, out with some friends uh, a couple weeks ago where we were sitting, like, outside at a picnic table um, in the middle of January under a heat lamp. So that was fun. It, It actually was pretty nice. But I could not recall what I had done the previous weekend. And my friend whom I had not been with that weekend knew what I had done and reminded me. And I'm like, oh my God, that is first off. Thank you for knowing my life better than mine. And second off, what a searing indictment of where my brain is right now. Well, long story short, the stress and anxiety that we all live under constantly now is affecting our ability to form long-term memories. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. that's cool. Or even simple sentences. So... (laughs) (laughs) words are so hard (laughs) well uh this episode will hopefully be a nice relaxing uh kind of like a nice relaxing broth of soup on a cold winter day uh because we are talking about food documentaries Uh, this is the the partner episode with our last episode which was about food in fiction here we're talking about food nonfiction. we've got some uh, we've got an excellent menu to serve you all of uh you have to stop you're out of control <laughs> no uh <laughs> our sommelier will be uh over to your table presently um but no we're, we're going to talk about uh some of the be- best food porn out there th- via chef's table uh and also just one of the one of the greatest and, and nicest food documentaries salt fat acid heat Uh, But before we get into any of that, we're going to talk about what's stuck in our head. That's whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about right now. Uh, So, Martha, take it away. What is stuck in your head? Well, so you know how a lot of people have been using quarantine to, like, watch new stuff and get caught up on their reading lists and, like, learn life skills and mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. i'm rewatching the x-files an excellent choice know. <laughs> <laughs> um no i i got to the end of rewatching the west wing and was like i could start a new show or <laughs> <laughs> um it's a great show although i just finished the first season and there is some rough stuff in there like it's very Oh, they made this in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. I, I've i never actually watched The X-Files all the, like, as a show. I only watched, like, episodes here and there. 
Um, and obviously, I know, you know, the cultural... Like, I, I am culturally fluent in X-Files, but I am not sure. X-Files fluent. Yeah, I grew up on it. Um, it was... My dad and I watched it together for a really long time until my mom was like, maybe a 12-year-old should not be watching this. <laughs> but uh, it, but it's aired on cable TV. It's Or non-cable TV. It's fine. Well, that also happened with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I watched um, weekly all the way through the third season before my dad was like, ooh, a lot of women getting killed on this show. Maybe don't want my preteen <laughs> daughter watching it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but no, X-Files is great. It's, yeah, very, very late 90s in the first season. Um, there is some extremely questionable depictions of, like, Native Americans that sure. isn't great. Um, one episode about a, um, a special needs gentleman that Mm -hmm. is not great. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think it does a lot of work to get better. Um, so yeah, now I'm into the second season. There's started to be more of the like lore episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I have always been a bigger fan of the monster of the week episodes in X-Files because I'm trash but well and like you know so many of the monsters of the week are fun like i've seen again i've i've seen only you know pick and choose episodes and most of them have been monster of the week episodes um the alien stuff just occasionally gets very repetitive yeah there's only so many times you can like see david duchovny complain about like his sister getting abducted or whatever happened although the the they have a flashback in the first season to when his sister was abducted and it was for um for the effects that they had access to surprisingly mm. effective like mm-hmm. very creepy um but yeah there are only so many times that you can watch scully be like there's no such thing as aliens and then there <laughs> definitely are and it's like well but every time this happens and you continue to be skeptical it confuses me. <laughs> Mulder, Mulder, you know there are no such thing as aliens, she says, as the light flashlight beam is shining directly on two gray aliens who are standing still, hoping hoping that they can't be seen if they just don't move. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> but also, Gillian Anderson is a literal treasure, so she can do whatever she wants. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, what's stuck in your head this week? Uh, well, what's stuck in my head this week is uh, the... 2019 film Godzilla colon King of Monsters. Uh, yes. This is the sequel to the Gareth uh, Edwards uh, di- uh, directed Godzilla movie from like 2016, 2014. Um, it's got a crazy stacked cast and a shockingly high number of them die. Uh, so definitely felt like some of them were like, ooh, you don't want to be any more Godzilla movies, do you? <laughs> All right. Well, bon voyage. Um, no, it was a lot of fun. This is the second time I've seen it. Uh, it was a great, like, turn brain off, watch some monsters fight. Huge flaws in the story and in character development and all the rest of it. But you know exactly what you're getting into when you buy the ticket or when you start streaming it on HBO. It's like, yes, it's called Godzilla King of Monsters. It's gonna look rad. And it It does. It is flawless. You shut your filthy mouth. That is objectively not true. (laughs) I cried when Mothra showed up. Well, of course you did. (laughs) Um, I was for all of for our listeners out there. I have a Mothra tattoo. She's very important to me. (laughs) Yeah, not to get too far into it. um, 
the I, I felt like the problem was uh, they had written the story outline. And then the question is like, OK, so how do these characters get from point A to point B? Helicopter. Yeah, OK, yeah. That, that's physically how they get there. But like, how, how does their character emotionally get there? Doesn't matter. Helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, flawless movie. <laughs> um, uh, it looks like it's di- it was directed by um, Zack Snyder, uh, and I mean that in a good way. Zack Snyder, for all his flaws, has great visual aesthetics, uh, or at least very strong visual aesthetics. And this is definitely in every fa- frame of painting kind of movie. So the big the big shots of the monsters are crazy lit and, and look very cool. And I was impressed that so many of the the fight scenes were filmed from a human perspective, which just makes the monsters seem even like bigger and more imposing and challenging. Correct. Um, my fun story about this is uh, I I was watching this with my wife Marin, who we had seen this movie together. We had rented it at home probably in the past year. She had literally no memory of this uh, until there's a scene near the end where Millie Bobby Brown is in um, Fenway Park. And she's like, oh, this is kind of seeming familiar now. So uh, you want to talk about COVID brain? Complete blanking on uh, watching Godzilla King of Monsters. Just Um, means that you get to watch it again and have it feel new. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And long story short, eventually Godzilla vs. Kong is going to come out. And based on that trailer, it's going to be just as crazy. Uh, Gonna see it. Why not? This is, yeah, this is why I watched Kong Skull Island the other day, because I hadn't actually seen it, which, mm. if you know me at all, is very strange. Very surprising, yeah. Yes. Um, but yeah, that one legitimately better than I thought it was going to be. So All of these Godzilla, like these new Godzilla movies are better than they have any well, right to be. I was going to say, that should not have surprised me, because I loved the first new Godzilla movie with Ken Watanabe and I loved King of the Monsters so I think it's just because I did not care for um, Peter Jackson's King Kong movie yeah have we had this conversation on air before it sounds vaguely familiar but maybe you were talking with Marin about it on our sister show love ya oh maybe um, but yeah I, I did not like Peter Jackson's version so I think I was very skeptical of Kong Skull Island um thoroughly enjoyed it mm-hmm. tons of fun um but yeah i i loved the first godzilla i think the people i think the detractors are um wrong yeah i was well, trying to think of what i wanted to say without swearing but part of it <laughs> part of it is it's a it's is a definite like you need to know what you're getting yourself into when you go into it. Granted, the movie is called Godzilla King of Monsters. I was say, so like what more do you need to know? Godzilla is on the title. Right. It does what it says on the tin. He's the king of the monsters. It's right yes. there. I'm, There's I'm gonna actually, be some other monsters. They're gonna fight. I'm legitimately curious to know what you mean by that. Like, how could you be misled by this movie? Why well, so I feel like these like the new Godzilla movies are sort of billed and hyped as like, well, it's not like a Toho where it's, you know, um, where it's like Japanese and it's all wonky things and costumes. No, this is like a serious action movie with pathos and drama. And look at all these famous actors we have. We've got Sally Hawkins and uh, Coach from Friday Night Lights and Millie Bobby Brown um, and uh, David Strathairn is in it as a general, so like we're gonna have drama and pathos, and it's like no, we're gonna have some monsters fighting each other. See, I don't think they're billing. 
I think if they were trying to bill it off of that, they wouldn't have called it King, King of, of the Monsters. Monsters. <laughs> uh, that's a fair also, point. Also, the fact that they are sticking so close to the original Godzilla character design, I feel like these were like, always like him intended... being a chonky boy instead of like the '99 Velociraptor yeah. look. Yeah, like I think these were very intentionally meant to evoke the original um and the ones that they're still making like the the japanese versions of this character Mm -hmm. i i don't think that these were ever intended to be like omg serious serious business that's fair maybe it's just movie going audiences are are dumb uh, you know, or, or perhaps, and this Brian is totally Cranston's allowed to make monster movies too, Pete. <laughs> right? No, I, I know. Um, this is totally off the cuff, and it might be way off base, but maybe it's like the Marvelfication where we we expect that our action movies will conform to you know specific templates now, and Godzilla kind of doesn't because it. Its plot is nonsense, and it doesn't really care about it. Its plot is a mechanism to get the monsters to fight, um, rather than, you know, like a a five plate spinning situation, uh, designed to both tell a a coherent and compelling story and set up the next coherent and compelling story in a massive saga. Yeah, Godzilla knows that all it has to do to set up the next movie is exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so uh, that is what was stuck in our head. Glad we had a nice long riff on on both Godzilla and the X-Files. Uh, lots of good throwback stuff here, um, which makes sense because we're all craving the comfort. And speaking of craving the comfort, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to dive into our main course of our various food-related homeworks. I'm you not going to stop anytime soon. <laughs> we will be right back. Uh, And we are back. Uh, The appetizers have been cleared away, and we're preparing the main course. No, I will not stop. I do not sign (laughs) off on this. I do not consent. (laughs) Um, So we're going to start with the homework that I assigned, which was the first two episodes of Samin Nusrat's Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Uh, These episodes were episode one, Fat, set in Italy, and episode two, Salt, set in Japan. Uh, Now, fun story about that, you might be asking yourself, why is the show called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat? But the episode orders don't conform to that. The first episode is fat and the second is salt. Uh, And the answer is that Netflix thought that people would be turned off by a Japanese-themed episode being the first one, and they went with the Italian one first because it was more familiar to American viewers. Um, So that's super fun. Thank you, Netflix. Uh, But no, that that little... That's also wildly like this is did they not understand how much we all love jiro dreams of sushi right exactly i almost assigned jiro dreams of sushi for this (laughs) um yeah i think they were like oh americans like italian food more than japanese food so gotta start with the italians to to rope them in um that being said and that snarky aside 
aside, this show is great. It's lovely. Samin is a incredibly charismatic uh, figure to be centering this show. Her idea of there are four basic things you need to know in order to cook, salt, fat, acid, and heat, and that's sort of your building blocks and you go from there, was truly a revelation for me in my own cooking. Um, she is so infectiously excited by everything she tries. Uh, the way she describes, we, we were talking last week about how challenging it is in a audio-visual medium to convey uh, all the other senses that are involved with, with good food, and she does such a good job at conveying it and conveying how how amazing the parmesan that she's tasting is or, or all the rest of it um and she speaks like eight different languages it's kind of insane um martha this was the first time you had seen this at all correct or were you rewatching? i yeah this was the first time i'd seen it i have no excuse my favorite genre of reality tv is people being really good at cooking mm -hmm. so like it's been on my to watch list for like since it was announced sure um and i just hadn't watched it before and i know that you gave us specific episodes to watch but once i started i i mean the episodes are like 45 minutes long yeah. they're delicious bite-sized i watched the whole thing yeah well, <laughs> in, one, <laughs> in one go it was so wonderful it it it's it's like when you're on the internet and something and someone says that something watered their crops and cleared their skin like this, I, this i've never i've never heard that phrase before but okay oh it's it's like a it's meant to um it's meant to denote like this healed me yeah in sure. some way so like like this made my heart happy um I mean, like like the first episode she's in like liguria and she's talking to some olive farmers and then she goes to an old pasta granny who's teaching her how to make pesto and then she goes to like the parmesan cheese makers and trying all their parms and talking to the really weird pig farmer slash butcher uh and and it's it's great because the food looks amazing and she's in italy and then the next episode it's the same thing but now she's in japan talking to like some soy sauce maker who talks to his bubbling fermenting little microbes and uh um, you know trying miso and all sorts of different powders and it's it's it it hits both the foodie and the food and the travel uh angles what a truly lovely counterpoint to diet culture also yes yes she because makes she's very big on that of like eat what makes you happy yeah eat what makes you happy and also food that has fat in it tastes good yeah like we like foods that are fatty because, or foods that have a fat component, whether that's an oil or lard or dairy fat or whatever, because it tastes good. And frequently, like, the fat is a major component to, like, the nutritional structure of that food. Mm -hmm. And it was just really lovely to watch somebody just unapologetically be like, this tastes good, so I'm going to eat it. Yes. Well, and part of it, too, is it's like, Eat what makes you happy. Eat it because it tastes good. But but part of the angle for her is like it's quality food. You know, like no no shade on garbage food. But like that's not what she's eating. Like high like high quality like olive oil for example is it's literally just fat. It's oil. Um, but you know there's scenes where she's just drinking olive oil out of a little tasting jar with the olive oil manufacturer olive oiler. Uh, don't know the the term for that. Um, and they're like talking about like the 
the the flavor notes you should be getting from good quality olive oil um this show is is what taught me that olive oil goes bad and if you get nice olive oil you should use it or else you are losing it mm-hmm. um did not know that until i until i watched this like a year ago for the first time and then was like oh huh i should throw out some old olive oils that i have then <laughs> <laughs> Um, and this episode was not one of the ones that we watched for um, the show, but I truly loved the scene in the heat episode where she cooks with her mom mm-hmm. and she's talking about like the difference in how she and her mother cook um, the through the whole show. This there is a theme of where she came from. Her family is Iranian mm-hmm. Persian. Uh, same, so she same thing. Talks- she talks about like the foods that she grew up on. It, it also comes up in the acid episode when she talks a lot about um, the yogurts and things that her mom would serve as a condiment. Um, but just again, and I, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, but the universality of some of these things that she's talking about, like you don't have to have been to Japan to understand the nature of like salt in your food and what salt does to um, or for cooking. So when she talks about like these really exotic misos or these really different like soy sauces, we have a point of reference for that, even though we can't all go to Japan and make friends with a like soy sauce fermenter. Yeah. Well, and similarly, like I had never thought of acid as being a part of, cooking like being foundational like i use lemon juice and lime juice in a ton of stuff i love citruses um but then thinking of it as one of the the cornerstones and then being able to interrogate my own dishes and think like this does need a little acid in here or you know or or whatever it might be um really beneficial yeah i tend to think of acid like when i'm when i'm thinking about it in terms of my own cooking i think about oh this needs a bright this needs something bright yeah yeah um i i actually i for lunch this week i'm i made myself um some like rice and veg veggie bowls and i did a quick pickle with radishes and i did not use enough vinegar so i'm eating them and i'm like ooh, i wish these were a little sharper i wish these were a little brighter yeah Um, because yeah they need that um that brightness otherwise it's like there's no edge to it and she she wrote a couple years ago for the new york times around thanksgiving about how it's like you know she she had a couple like dishes you can bring to thanksgiving or whatever and she was really focusing on like the the acid dishes like um, cranberry sauce or, or whatever else because oftentimes cranberry sauce is the only thing with any amount of brightness whatsoever on that table um I love cranberry sauce so much. It is it is freaking good, but also like when you got the the mashed potatoes and the turkey and the gravy and, and everything else, it's like okay, this is all just fat and salt and, and deliciousness. But like, what else can you bring to add that extra little bit of of acid or brightness to it? Um, and so she had a bunch of ideas, but um, another big thing and theme of the show is is food as a building block to community. And I think that's going to be a theme as well with Chef's Table. But uh, there is such... It is so important how... And we talked about this last episode, how food and community and camaraderie are absolutely tightly linked. Um, 
both with like sharing meals with each other, but also just learning from each other, I think. Like she, so much of this documentary is her talking like one-on-one or or one-on-two with, you know, with people who are experts in their field. Um, And then also get like being able to get in there herself and give it a try. Like when she learns to make focaccia from uh, the the Genoese guy um, or like the the pesto from the, the pasta granny. It's like you're... You're having that like that interpersonal communion with with someone else, um, and getting something out of it. In addition to like delicious food, you're also like learning something and sharing it. Yes, yes. Like I, I loved that it was just as important to her to share the things that she makes and to share the experiences. Like all of her. Um, you know, when she's traveling, she's tasting and talking about these things with another person. I really loved, um, is that, no, that's in the, that's in the acid episode. So it's not super germane to this. Um, but just bring it up anyway. When she, when she does that salsa tasting in Mexico and like is trying all of the different kinds of salsas. Salsa is not a food that I think of as being particularly acidic, but it's full of tomatoes, which are very acidic. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and you see lime juice. Yes. And a little bit of salt. Even. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I also loved that throughout all of the episodes, she's still talking about all four of the flavor components. Yes. Like they they don't exist in isolation because when you're cooking, nothing exists in isolation. It's all continuously like influenced by um, the other. Like it's constantly changing and being influenced by each ingredient that you add. I was thinking about that a lot in the fat episode, where like obviously that's the core of it, and like we're doing olive oil and and prosciutto and everything else. But like everyone is also talking about like how much salt they're adding or not adding, like. Uh, the cheese is going to add some saltiness so we can go a little bit lighter on the salt until the end with the with the pesto. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're right. Cheese does add a little bit of saltiness. Won't, won't stop me from putting a bunch of salt in it anyway, but, like, that is a good <laughs> thing to remember. Oh, yeah, cheese is very salty. Yeah. All right, well, do we want to uh, begin segueing into our next set of homeworks, the ones that you assigned? Sure. All right. Uh, so I picked the 2015, well, it, it started airing in 2015 on Netflix, the documentary series uh, Chef's Table. Uh, this is a, a, a show where every episode is a little mini documentary about a different chef and um, their journey to becoming uh, the like critically acclaimed chef that they are. And also usually the story of the restaurant that at the time that these were filming the restaurant that they owned or operated. Um, and specifically I picked three, I picked three specific episodes. Um, I picked the episode about Nikki Nakayama who owns and operates, uh, and Naka in Los Angeles, uh, Magnus Nilsson who operates the, uh, restaurant uh-huh. Favaken in Sweden. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce an umlaut over an A. So, uh, And then the episode about Grant Ashatz, who is the head chef at Alinea here in Chicago. 
the reason that I picked these three particular episodes, I admit right now I have not seen the entirety of Chef's Table. I think there are a little over 30 episodes now across a couple of different seasons. Well, and they also have sidebars of like Chef's Table France and Chef's Table Barbecue. Um, I, too, have but, not seen all of them at this point. Yeah, so I picked the, the three episodes I picked were ones that I remembered as being particularly affecting. Um, Nikki Nakayama especially um she is a japanese a japanese chef uh who was initially trained at a sushi restaurant and her episode is very much about how she um like her her whole existence is kind of fighting against this very patriarchal um world of cooking and also her japanese family uh and how she after kind of learning the foundations of Japanese cooking, decided that what she wanted to do was really more freeform and not based so um, heavily in the very precise nature of sushi. Her restaurant is a kaiseki-based restaurant, which is a Japanese kind of progressive meal um, where you get a bunch of little dishes that all kind of flow one from the other. There's a really lovely moment in her episode where they're talking about how, like, you serve a steamed dish before a fried dish mm -hmm. and a sweet dish before a salty. So like there's a, there's a, a progression there. Like th there are rules, but within the rules you can play. Right. And she basically uses it as an inspiration to do what she wants. Um, in contrast, Magnus Nilsson's episode is all about how he kind of rediscovers the traditional, cooking and ingredients of Sweden and how he brings those to his restaurant to keep um, to keep these cooking methods and dishes and seasonality of everything um, like keep them alive and his restaurant sounds absolutely fascinating to me because it's this little like 12 seat restaurant in the middle of nowhere Sweden yeah. that is now like an internationally acclaimed restaurant because he is um you know, incredible and making a name for himself. I have very bad news for you. It closed in it's 2019. Closed. That's kind of what I was afraid of. Well, I mean, it, it closed before the pandemic. So, well, and it's important to remember that this, these were all shot in 2015 and the lifespan of a restaurant is frequently not very long. Yeah. Like chefs leave to go do other stuff. Um, uh, Nikki Nakayama's the, the, uh, Enaka, uh, which is the restaurant in this is her second restaurant. Um, Mm -hmm. And and I think yeah. same with the Linea. Well, Alinea. Uh, it's his. He worked at several other restaurants. Um, Alinea, I believe, is was his first. Like I, I think you're right. Hel I opened this and helmed this project. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Grant Ashatz, um own operates Alinea in Chicago. Uh, he is a molecular gastronomer. Um, food is his playground. Mm -hmm. Um. <laughs> I have eaten at Alinea. Mm. I was there. So jealous. Uh, well, I was there. Um, how long ago was that? 18 years ago. Wait, what? Uh, you were like 12? I was 14 or 15. Wow. Alinea has been open for a very long time. Well, and uh, it's interesting. It's it is currently still open, but the chef's table episode ends with them closing it down temporarily to completely overhaul it. Um, so it's it's sort of interesting that we got a peek of what like what it was, and I have no idea what it's like now. I'm sure very similar, but also you know. 
different and, enough. Well, and now um, it's like there is the Alinea family of restaurants in Chicago. Like there is Alinea and there is Next and there is Royster. Um, and Next, and we, were, we were talking on a previous episode, but maybe off air, about how you've gotten some um, takeout from Next. Yes, uh, my husband and I have gotten takeout from Next a couple of times. What they have done is they will partially cook and assemble your meal and then give you instructions on how to finish your preparations at home so you don't have to worry about anything getting cold in in transit or like you're you're doing all of the finishing so it's fresh um, at home, which I think is a really smart way to do it. It's such a great um, idea. Also means that we can afford it. <laughs> Because a tasting a tasting menu at one of these restaurants, if, if you also get wine pairings, can be four or five hundred dollars a person. Like mm-hmm. these are um, these are not super accessible dining experiences. Um, but one of the thing one of, the other reason that I picked these three particular episodes is because all of them are talking about chefs who get excited by a certain aspect of cooking. And they're all three incredibly different. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're all like it's every episode of Chef's Table follows essentially the same pattern. Yeah. Like they are all talking about um, a ridiculously talented chef who has to find their way, who has to who has to get inspired. I, w- I was reading um, a synopsis of some of these episodes where they talk about their like aha moment the moment where they realize like, Oh, this is what I'm good at. This is what I want to do. This is what being a chef means to me. Um, and then how that launches them into this realm of kind of culinary superstardom. Um, but all three of these represent such a different variation on theme, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, Magnus Nielsen is sort of like the most of that theme where like he almost left cooking because he wasn't inspired and then sort of, returned to a small like his small hometown that he did not like growing up in and sort of rediscovered it um Mm -hmm. and and sort of that that and the rediscovery of of as you're saying like the traditional scandinavian cooking really sort of opened opened him up to what he was excited by yeah and like finding within him within himself this desire to keep these traditional cooking methods in in like the common memory and common parlance. Right. Was it his episode that was talking about how, how quickly cooking methods and foods can disappear? Um, Yes. Okay. Um, And then you have Nikki, whose whole thing is like starting from a a place of tradition, but using that as a method of, individual expression mm-hmm. and then grant Ashats who's just like food is a playground right there are like, no rules <laughs> what if this tomato looks like a strawberry haha <laughs> <laughs> tricked you also like i straight up was like no that's just a strawberry that you de-seeded wait that's a tomato yes huh, wild it's so good <laughs> um uh the 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 thing that i appreciate maybe appreciate is the wrong way but the thing that struck out to me a lot with the uh um and Naka, uh, Nikki Nakayama's uh, restaurant, was how dedicated she was to her customers. Like, th- she keeps spreadsheets on all of the customers, what they ordered last time, 
and sort of has something prepared for them as soon as they come in this time. Um, it seems exhausting, but also very, like, that's how you become a top-rated, like, chef and restaurant. <laughs> you know, like, you, you put in that work. Um, but, like, she's she's so singularly, like, she's very singularly focused on, on like, the customer experience in a way, like, not to say that the others aren't, but it seems even more paramount for her. There is a lovely moment where she's talking to her partner, um, like, trying Slash to figure sous out. sous chef, which is a, I'm glad that relationship works for them, but wow, could I? <laughs> Good on them. Um, but yeah, so they're trying to figure out what, like, a menu for a particular customer, and uh, Carol, her partner, goes, he's eight. <laughs> but the fact that it still matters to her, like, the fact that, because I... My family, I I am lucky enough that my family has been able to eat out at a bunch of, at a variety of restaurants all over the spectrum. And there are some restaurants where if you come in and you are a child or you can't drink, like they don't, you, you cease to matter to them. Yeah. Like they, they could care less about you. And it meant so much to me that she was taking that amount of care with one of her customers who she knew and remembered and also was a kid. Mm -hmm. Like he still mattered. His experience still mattered to her. And I don't think that that's always, well, I know that that's not always true. Yeah. With, uh, restaurants, particularly like very high end restaurants. Right. That told you so much about her. Um, and and it goes back to the the theme we were talking about with salt fat acid heat about like the importance of food and community and how they are together like she is very intentionally creating a space where where that matters um but at the same time i, I thought this was the other interesting thing from her episode was that she very intentionally is like almost pull, pulls herself back from the limelight because of some um unsurprising but deeply disappointing misogyny in the food uh, industry and food culture um mm -hmm. so it's it's sort of it's almost like a self-sacrificing push for like the customer you know enjoyment at the expense of her own you know acclaim yeah I, she she said it she said it best it's like she can put her ego aside because it all goes into the food. Like the food does the talking. So she doesn't, uh, she can be more reserved and just let, let the dishes sort of speak for themselves is I think the idea she was getting at. Um, where, and then Grant, Grant Ashatz is like kind of the different, he <laughs> opposite. He's like, he's very outgoing. He seems like a, a food bro. Um, <laughs> and it's just all ego, uh, not in a bad way, you know, not say he's egotistical, but like, I think that to be a top rated chef like this, you need to be kind of like an egotistical maniac who believes that you are opening the best restaurant in the world. Right. I was like, gonna say, you need to think that you are the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, even if, even if, if like Nikki, Naki, uh, Nakayama, you're like, I'm going to pull back and I'm going to let the food speak to me. You still have to believe that you are creating food that is good enough that it will like be able to speak for you. Like, mm -hmm. which does take a certain amount of like, yeah. Uh, intense dedication, drive, possible insanity, uh, and some mild egomania. Uh, and, All of the above. And, like, perfectionism. 
um, I, I was talking about Alinea uh, with my family a couple hours ago on like a, a group call we do, and one of my brother's friends was a dishwasher there for like a hot minute. Oh, uh, wild! And, and he said that like even the like he as a lowly dishwasher was held to the same standard as anyone else in that kitchen had to be quiet. Uh, had to be, you know, every dish is hand-washed, and it's all hand-washed, like, the proper way, and yada, yada, yada. Um, And I will tell you, one of the reasons that I remember my experience at Alinea is because they treated my sister and I like we were worthwhile customers. mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, we were, I was 14, which meant that Lizzie, my sister, was 11 or 12, and we got just as much attention and care from the waiters as my parents did. Mm-hmm. Which is like A plus. Good job. Mm-hmm. Um, we we should note that uh, Grant Ashatz has is that how you pronounce his last name? I don't know. Now I'm okay. Uh, <laughs> you you said it very confidently, and I don't like... remember how you said it. I've been trying to say it your way, but um, anyway, he he's a fascinating story because after he opened Alinea, um, he had tongue cancer or throat cancer. Um, survived after some experimental treatments, but also lost his sense of taste for a while. Um, so Wikipedia is telling me it's actually. Akits. Akits. Okay. I promise I watched this episode. <laughs> I, I I watched this episode. I finished this episode ten minutes before we're supposed to, before we started recording. So, uh, I have even less excuse than you. Um. So so Grant Akits. Apologies for mispronouncing the name. Um. Like, for a while, could not taste, uh, and also thought he was going to die. Um which is a wild place for a, you know, three-star chef to be in. Yeah, I mean, it's... I can't even... I cannot even imagine what that would have been like. And um, after he lost his sense of taste and kept working, like, how... To be in the food industry and to have lost that... Yeah. I think it's incredible that he continued going, that he was basically like, well, I'm not done. He had, there was an interesting bit where he was like, they were talking about his process during that time. And it's like, Mm -hmm. he would sort of sketch out ideas and, and just have to communicate with, with like the chefs in the kitchen. And they were saying, it's like, okay, you say you want this. Yeah. I, I think it was like, acidic maybe it's like on a scale of bread being one and pickles being five how acidic do you want this to be it's like yeah you do need to create like a new language to describe the food like to describe the taste that you are envisioning Mm -hmm. without being able to actually test that it's matching your vision well and i i wonder if um his because because of how he approached food, I wonder if that made it easier for him to describe the food. Like, he was already used to talking and thinking about food in an unconventional way. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that made it easier for him to describe the what he is going for in, like, a very um, specific... Because because he is not chained to conventional descriptors or words, um, I feel like he could get incredibly specific with 
the flavors or experience that he is trying to go for. Mm-hmm. And it also seemed very much like he he worked very he works very closely with his team. Um, it, it feels collaborative, uh, and that's that's important. Like tonight, he was, he was also talking about like the the horrible experiences he had as a, a cook in Charlie Trotter's restaurant back in the day, and it's like he it, it felt like he was trying to create a space unlike that. Um, and that that is important to then be able to have that trust in in the team, mm-hmm. um, and and have everyone sort of be on the same wavelength so that you can describe these things, uh, and and you know know that they'll be able to go and like figure out what you're what you're trying to describe. So as we've been talking, I realized that one of the really interesting differences between the Chef's Table episodes and Salt, Badass, and Heat is that even though they are both about um, food and cooking, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat is a very personal cooking experience that Salmon shares with people that she is very close to. And the Chef's Table episodes are about sharing food with really the world. Like, mm. the the process of cooking and developing re- uh, recipes for a restaurant is very different from just playing around in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts or feelings about the, the different, the different kinds of intimacy that both shows are talking about. Like the chef's table episodes are about very personal experiences, but salt, fat, acid, heat is about cooking itself being the very personal and intimate experience. Like they're, they're, they're about cooking. They're about personal cooking in two very different kinds of environments. So I'm, I'm going to throw an additional ball into the air on this, which, which is the direction I thought you were going to go, which is that the chef's table episodes are all focused on a chef and their vision, where salt, fat, acid, heat is, Samin is sort of the lens, the, the guide through a wide range of people. So it's also different in, like, the personal sense being that it's it's about her, like, Sulfat Acid Heat is about Samin's experience with the food that she's consuming, but she's really just the guide for you, the viewer who can't be there, to learn from all these other different people. Whereas Salt, uh, uh, Chef's Table is, like, the incredible deep dive into a single person's drive to create something unique and special you know mm-hmm. um which was an excellent way to not actually address the question you wanted me to address and instead just throw something else into the mix that's fine <laughs> i love food i love the different stories you can tell with food like so why why do you think we find these stories so affecting i know that's a topic you wanted to talk about and um i was frankly uh delighted when you texted me that you had like oops you accidentally watched all of salt fat acid heat uh because it was just so enjoyable for you like we can't share food but i was glad that i could share that food documentary with you yes it's it's sharing so the it it goes back to i think the emotions that salmon is inspire like the the emotions that are being discussed and displayed in these documentaries like i then get to live vicariously through like our lives are hell right now but for like two hours or whatever i could go to mexico and taste salsas with salmon Mm -hmm. like 
when she's such an infectious personality, like yeah. And I I also think that this um it is a similar answer for me for the chef's table, like the way that they shoot and show each each episode is dedicated to showing you a selection of dishes from the chef's restaurant. And the way that they are filmed, it's like, I'm not eating that, but oh man, kind of feels like I am. I mentioned this <laughs> I mentioned this earlier in the episode. I think it is hands down the best food porn. Like I, I cannot think of any it, show or anything. Is- the photography is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And the way that they film, like, the preparations and showing you how carefully these things get plated and the wacky ways that some of these things get <laughs> plated. Um, Looking it, at you, Alinea. Yeah. <laughs> I I love how much hardware he has just invented mm-hmm. to, like... um. I've also had drinks at his at the aviary, his cocktail mm, bar, mm-hmm. which if you have never been the next time I have when... never been. And I, I was looking back pre COVID. I did look into it for a hot second for a weekend that we were going to be in Chicago, but uh, it didn't it work is out. Worth, it is worth every penny. I've been twice. It All is right. obscenely expensive. It's like $75 for a three cocktail like tasting course. It is worth every penny. Done and um, done. But even even just for the cocktails, like one of the um one of the drinks you can get comes in a it's like a three inch wide flat on either side glass teapot that is full of herbs and aromatics mm. that they then fill with um a gin mix. I was hoping you were gonna say gin. Oh, that so sounds amazing. As it steeps the flavor oh, changes. So like every tea. time every time you pour it, you're getting a slightly different flavor experience. And I I bring this one up specifically because the teapot is something that Grant invented <laughs> in order to do this particular like the shape and the um the way that it works and like the filter by the like it is designed for this cocktail. Wow. And like there are there are pieces of hardware and tools that he serves his food on that he invented in order to serve those particular dishes on. Um, Martin was watching the uh, that episode, the Eleni episode, with me, and she uh, was joking about the the spun sugar balloon. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, one of the rom coms you watched uh, also had ha- had a balloon, and she's like, "Oh, I think they just straight up ripped that off from Alinea. Oh, probably. Uh, maybe it wasn't a rom com that you had watched, but it was a rom com she had seen. I have seen, I've seen a couple of places do some kind of take on like blowing up a balloon and dipping it in something that you then like cool down so you can pop the balloon and then you right. have a sphere of something. Chocolate. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a, it's not a totally. But the idea of the sugar itself is like it's it's like blown glass. Yes. Yeah. Looks freaking great. Great. It's incredible. Yeah. One of my one of my cocktails had like a a frozen sphere of like apple juice that was full of a different <laughs> mixer. So you broke the like you you broke the frozen ball and then everything mixed together. It's it's Oh my nuts. god. Oh my god. <laughs> like 
you can deride you can deride Grant for being gimmicky all you want to, but at the end of the day, what he is crafting for you is an experience, and he's also crafting an experience that's not going to be the same from person to person. Like the way that I experience his food is going to be different from the way that you do because we're not going to approach it the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that is such I I cannot conceive of how his brain works to approach food and cooking that way but man am i glad that it does yeah yeah we we were talking how and um i am into the gimmicks more than marin was uh, watching this but she was like i'm glad that he is going so far so that other people can go not quite as far and provide wild and innovative dishes that are not um uh insanely gimmicky at the same time yeah you know it's like like you always need someone there on the cutting edge whether the cutting edge is for you is another story but like someone needs to be there pushing the boundary so that other people can can fill in the space anything else we want to talk about on these two topics i kind of tapped out yeah, um, I all got of very, this... I got very riled up there for a minute. <laughs> uh, all of this makes me uh, very sad that we can't go eat a bunch of delicious food and oh very God. excited for the future where we can. I miss... I, I miss restaurants so much. Last weekend, uh, we did a... Uh, we did takeout from one of our go-to like valentine's places which is all small plates it's a phenomenal restaurant in milwaukee and the takeout was very good they it was very well packaged everything was was tasty uh the dish that we were both the least excited for turned out to be friggin' amazing but you still don't like it's not quite the same as being there in person and having it come fresh out of the kitchen and like being in the in the atmosphere of a restaurant with other people eating around you and like sort of the hum of conversation and and all the rest of it. Um, <laughs> honestly, uh, someone taking the dishes away at the end of each course and then you don't have to worry about them ever again. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> like that's that was like weirdly a thing. It's like, oh, right. Yeah. Now we have to do these dishes. <laughs> um. But obviously we will keep doing takeout because we want all these restaurants to survive. Yeah, voting with your dollar is really... We found out that um, two of our favorite restaurants in the area are temporarily um, on on hibernation. Mm. That's some real fingers crossed that they, they reawaken come spring. Um, yeah spring in a metaphorical sense not a calendar sense yeah one of them is um poor phil's oh no yeah oh no they have not been able to or um i mean doing, first off this does not surprise me yeah doing takeout was not proving to be a viable i would not get takeout like no shade on poor phil's it's a great place to go i don't think no, i would yeah. ever think to get takeout from there appeal is hanging out and having another beer yeah, like yeah and that's not really something we can do right now go in there in the summer having some calamari and a, a couple of beers i really hope so oh my god okay well um keep your keep your eyes out for any sort of uh kickstarter campaign i will throw in some bucks to make sure that they reopen yeah 
All right. Well, uh, unfortunately, ending on a downer note there for all the Oak Parkers in the audience. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> um, but that is going to do it for this episode, unless you have anything else you want to add. I don't. I love food. I miss restaurants. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you can find us on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Did You Do Your Homework, uh, where the, the hit that comes up. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Um, you can find us on any podcatcher. Please like and rate and review us. How does that work? Share and follow? Do, uh, do the you. things you're supposed to do and tell your friends. Yeah. Um, Martha, where can people find you and what are you plugging? Uh, you can find me on all the places at Magical Martha, uh, including my newsletter that I write whenever I feel like it. You can find that at backslash or tinyletter.com backslash Magical Martha. Uh, you can also find me on the other podcast that I do that drops on alternating Wednesdays from this one on the very same feed. Uh, it's called Love Ya. Uh, Pete's wife, Marn, and I talk about rom-coms and teen movies. Our last episode was about Love Guaranteed, the Netflix original starring Rachel Lee Cook and Damon Wayans Jr. And our next episode is going to be about the third and final to All the Boys I've Loved Before film. Nice. So check that out. Yeah, going to get that nice to All the Boys bump, hopefully, on the next next listen. Fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture uh, and retweeting any Wellington content I come across from the Shed Aquarium Penguins. Um, for the Super Bowl, they revisited some shots of penguins walking around Soldier Field, and it is, is exactly as amazing as you think it is. I'm very, very fond of all of the videos of them walking around the Field Museum. Yes. Yes. Also, I miss museums. I miss museums so much. I last weekend I was uh, getting absolutely stir crazy. I'm like, I just want to go to the art museum. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, speaking of uh, no, there's absolutely no segue here to be uh, had. Um, our next episode uh, is going to be about a a property that Martha and I both love and have loved since we were, I don't know, 10 or whenever we both read the first book in the series. Um, we are talking about His Dark Materials, the Philip Pullman series that begins with The Golden Compass. Uh, the original trilogy is The Golden Compass, or um, The Northern Lights for the UK listeners, uh, The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. And he has a new uh, trilogy out now, the, first two, uh, the Book of Dust trilogy, the first two books of which are La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth. Um, the third book is not yet published. Yeah, uh, we'll also probably be talking about the HBO show, uh, which has recently wrapped up its second season, which corresponds to The Subtle Knife. Um, spoilers ahoy for all of those. But, you know, God, if you have they're amazing. By now, yeah, yeah, or Good like, Lord. um, if if you want to do the audiobook, um, it's a full, ca it's a they're full great. cast recording, and it's fantastic. Uh, so yeah, there we go. Uh, that's gonna come to you in two weeks, and until then, class dismissed. <laughs>